Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. Psychiatry is unique amongst medical disciplines in embracing a truly holistic approach to patient assessment and care, insofar as being guided by a biopsychosocial ethos. With an increasing awareness of the need to consider the spiritual component of a patient's life too. However, in our desire for acceptance and credibility as a medical discipline, has psychiatry strayed from what makes it unique? Has psychiatry overcompensated biologically in order to be viewed as truly medical? Provocative questions may be, but necessary to address, or else psychiatry may simply become a subdiscipline of neurology, behavioral neurology. So in today's episode entitled Psychiatry, Quo Vardis, we will be addressing these questions and discussing related issues. So joining me, I have the pleasure and privilege of welcoming Professors Vikram Patel and Suvira Ramlal. Suvira is a psychiatrist and an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and the clinical head of specialized psychiatry at King Dinuzulu Hospital Complex in Durban. She's the current president of the College of Psychiatrists here in South Africa, and she co-manages the KwaZulu-Natal branch of the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, She's also co-edited a book with Surisha Naidu called Talk Therapy Toolkit, a counseling and psychotherapy primer. And she's authored one of the chapters in that book entitled From Psyche to Soul, Spirituality and Psychotherapy, Things That Are Close to Severus Heart. Now, Vikram is a psychiatrist and the Pershing Square Professor of Global Health in the Blavatnik Institute's Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He co-leads the department's Mental Health for All lab and co-leads the Global Mental Health at Harvard initiative. His work has focused on the burden of mental health problems across the life course, their association with social disadvantage and the use of community resources for their prevention and treatment. He is also a co-founder of the Movement for Global Mental Health as well as the Center for Global Mental Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, the Mental Health Innovations Network and Sangath an Indian NGO which won the World Health Organization's Public Health Champion of India Prize. He was listed in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential Persons of the Year in 2015 and was very recently awarded an honorary doctorate at the University of Stellenbosch for his outstanding contribution to psychiatry and psychology. So Severa and Vikram, welcome. Thank you so much for for joining us. And I've, I've, I've obviously posed some specific questions which arise from my own personal clinical experience and resultant concerns, but I wanted to start the conversation a bit more generally first, just looking at medicine, um, which kind of sets the framework for the, for the, for the conversation related to psychiatry specifically. And, and Vikram, I'm going to pick up on, on a, on a phrase that, that, that you've used in, in, in a News 24 interview that was published earlier this year, where you spoke about the medical industrial complex and, and I have concerns from what I'm reading uh, opinion pieces in the British Medical Journal and the British Journal of um, General Practice looking at the industrialization of medicine and how patients are experiencing the system. Your your thoughts and comments, Vikram, just generally as we speak about medicine before we get into psychiatry. 
Well, uh, you know, thanks very much, Chris. So honestly, I, I think this is something, it's the elephant in the room yes. uh, that explains why what we are taught in medical school is often not what we actually practice uh, when we actually are let loose, as it were, in the population. You know, we're taught, for example, in medical school, the importance of evidence-based practice, right. uh, about person-centered practice, yes. all these wonderful ideas are instilled in our in our minds. But when we actually enter the real world, the coalface of healthcare, suddenly all that information is replaced by information that is often deeply conflicted by commercial interests. Right. Uh, and in fact, you know, I'd urge your, your listeners to uh, look at a very recent series of articles that was published in The Lancet yes. uh, on the commercial determinants of health. Mm. And it really documents uh, vividly how commercial conflicts of interest have become so deeply embedded in the way healthcare is delivered that it's almost impossible for a patient to know when they're receiving a particular healthcare advice, a prescription, for example, whether that is really what they need or whether that's actually somehow deeply conflicted by commercial interests, either for the practitioner or for the company uh, that is profiting from that particular healthcare advice. I mean, Severe, you'll obviously jump in with your own thoughts, but I mean, you know, Vikram, it's deeply troubling, actually. It's almost as if the, the, the kind of, 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 of spirit and ethos of medicine has become corrupted by commercial interests. Now, obviously, you know, one accepts that there are financial issues around medicine, medicine costs, so therefore we have to allocate resources and funding. But I think the, the, the real concern is what motivates prescribing? What motivates diagnosis? Um, and I think, for example, and, and, and I don't want to focus on the statins specifically, which are the anti-cholesterol drugs that are used, but these kind of parameters that are, are, are being recommended as requiring the use of statins has always often begged the question, you know, what is really going on here? And I think that's a, that's a real concern, actually. Severe, your thoughts? You know, I think uh, Vikram uh, correctly says it's the elephant in the room and the elephant has many distinct parts. And when you talk about the industrialization of medicine and the medical industrial complex, there's many aspects to it. It's the, you know, the, uh, the medical aid societies who mm. have their own agenda. Uh, I work in the public sector, so it's we're really at the mercy of politicians who mm. somehow do not prioritize health, especially mental health. So we have those constraints. You really have, you can only prescribe what's on the formulary. You can only um, offer a service based on what staffing you have. Um, so those are the, the two dimensions. But there's the other dimension and it's the role of pharma yeah. and how that has changed. I mean, I have no problems with the benefits that us having psychotropic medications have added to us being able to treat many conditions. Sure. But it's become a loose cannon. And, you know, you go to the other extreme where you got cosmetic psychopharmacology. And then now we're going to magic mushrooms and uh, S-ketamine and all those kinds of things. So I think we, we really, uh, we lost a sense of our, our anchor, our identity. And unless we take stock, there are these external forces that are really going to control everything that we say, do and think. Well, well you see, I'm a, I'm going to refer to the opinion piece in the uh, British Journal of General Practice where they really speak about the National Health Service in, in, in the UK looking at issues of improved productivity, 
greatest value for every pound spent. And they're saying, you know, this is, this is the language of the production line. And so there's this real concern that we're going to lose the human element. And I know Vikram, you mentioned evidence-based medicine, but to some extent they, they, they kind of put evidence-based medicine almost in the same category where it's very prescriptive and, and, and it's almost dehumanizing and that it doesn't look at the human element beyond the, the data that informs evidence-based medicine. So I'm not sure what your thoughts are on, on, on that, but certainly the whole issue of industrialized medicine comes down to uh, um, resources, financial resources, and productivity. And I don't know that I've ever really thought of doctors in terms of productivity per se. So your thoughts there, Vikram? So, you know, I don't think evidence-based medicine and person-centered medicine are conflicting ideas or right. values. I think they are completely complementary. I, I think person-centered medicine implicitly incorporates evidence-based medicine. That is to say, you're offering the individual what they yes. need rather than what you believe there might be some kind of diagnostic cluster in which they fit in. And in fact, I, I would say this is one of the biggest challenges for modern medicine, and especially so for psychiatry, that we have ceased to see the person in front of us and instead see a diagnosis in front of us. And honestly, this has historically been the problem with somatic medicine. Nice. And, you know, when I, when I took up psychiatry as a resident long time ago, the reason that I was really attracted to psychiatry was because back then it was one of the only branches of medicine that saw the person yes. first and the diagnosis second. But sadly, over the last 30-odd years of being a psychiatrist, it seems that for reasons that we could discuss, yes. uh, that our branch of medicine that stood out as being, I think, fundamentally person-centered yes. has, because it wants to, I think, embrace the notion that we want to be respected by our medical colleagues in pediatrics or, or cardiology and so on. We've embraced that very, very reductionist, diagnosis-driven approach where the person has now disappeared from you. I, I, I mean, so I, I would argue that person-centeredness is really where we should return. Those are our yes. roots. Um, and we could talk more, of course, about how the medical industrial complex has profoundly influenced uh, whether or not an individual receives evidence-based care which is also person-centered in the mental health. So I think just to be clear, in terms of evidence-based care, I'm, 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 I suppose it's objective and it offers you standards. So it gives you some kind of, 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 of uh, uh, um, rigor in that sense because I do think that psychiatry lends itself to a somewhat more individualistic approach to the practice of the, of the discipline. And I, I suppose one of the concerns I have is that Evidence-based medicine, and, and, and here you maybe challenge me or, or question what I'm going to say. Does that challenge clinician autonomy in the sense that they would respond to the person who may fall outside of what might be best in terms of evidence-based practices, but you're looking at the individual? Because if you speak about person-centered, does every person fit into evidence-based medicine, Vikram? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, Chris. I, I, I kind of think… I don't see these as competing ideologies right. at all. Yeah. I, I mean, evidence-based simply means that whatever it is that you're addressing in terms of the unique and specific needs of an individual is guided by evidence. Right. But what I think we've mistakenly seen evidence-based medicine as being is that you have to categorize an individual a priori into some kind of biomedical yes. category. Okay. And that evidence-based medicine means that that individual then gets whatever that category has been shown to actually need rather right. than what the individual. 
So we've conflated the individual with the diagnostic category. Um, and of course, when you do when you do that, then I agree with you that evidence-based medicine may seem actually uh, in conflict with right. person-centered medicine. Okay. But actually, person-centered medicine in, should should be the overarching umbrella within yes. which evidence is no. actually a guiding principle. And I suppose that makes complete sense because we do need some kind of overarching framework into which we make our decisions. But obviously we don't lose sight of the individual in front of us, which brings us to something that I wanted to get to in a minute. But first I want to check in with Severa. Your, your thoughts on what Vikram and I are discussing. Yeah, evidence evidence for what? Evidence for the uh, diagnosis, all right, which is a biological, well, based on how our diagnostic system is, it's a diagnostic, uh, medically, biomedically arrived at diagnosis. And, you know, while Vikram is talking, I'm just wondering, you know, the, the challenges we had when we make diagnoses on psychometrics and what's norm, what's yes. normal and et cetera. What about, you know, these diagnostic categories? Yes, I know DSM went beyond and, and they were more culturally inclusive, et cetera. But, you know, a depression in um, an Indian South African versus a North American Indian Maybe biologically, we can argue that, you know, it's the same changes that, that are manifesting there. But is it necessarily that the same evidence-based treatment will work in each of these populations? So, mm. you know, one, we come back to the thing, it's not just about the biological treatment. Yes. Um, but it's about treating the individual uh, within their unique psychological, social, spiritual, cultural setting. Well, and so that's where the limitations come in. Whereas I can understand for prescribing your drug, yes, there's evidence-based, maybe some evidence-based for some of the psychotherapies. But once again, if we're talking true person-centered uh, treatment, then we have to be inclusive of all those other dimensions of what makes a patient a person. Well, I suppose you're talking very much about the context of the individual, and I think that's that's critical. So evidence-based medicine works up to a certain point, but then I and and and, and then beyond that, you've you've really got to look at the individual and their context. But I wanted to touch on this whole issue of of how we diagnose in psychiatry, and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual fifth version now it's in its text revision and i think one of the concerns i have and i and i certainly see that is this tick box approach to psychiatry where you're literally ticking off symptoms arriving at a diagnosis and then algorithmically so that's what should follow and then we get into the whole evidence-based medicine approach which can be quite concrete in that sense and i think i i i'm a little bit concerned that psychiatry is is becoming a a, a tick box discipline I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Vikram and, and, and Severa. So Vikram, we'll kick off with you. Well, you know, I think, first of all, we need to remind ourselves, um, where did we, how did we land in this situation? You know, it's important to remember that this has not always been the way that right. we, we, we formulated an individual's mental health problem. In fact, the word formulation is no longer even utilized. But when, you know, when I was a psychiatry resident, you know, this algorithmic tick box approach had just come into fashion. But what was existing before that, which was, for example, talking about an individual through a short little biography of that individual's, not just presenting complaints, but their life story. I mean, yes. Chris, I'm sure you remember, Sylvia, you remember. We, you know, I remember when we used to present in the grand rounds or in, 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 the, in the rounds with our consultant uh, uh, attending psychiatrist, we'd say things like, yeah, uh, 
This is Vikram Patel. He is a 59-year-old man who is a professor uh, in a medical school. He lives with his wife and son uh, in a, in a one-bedroom house uh, in, in this part of the world. Um, you know, he, he was born in so-and-so. You know, and then we'd have a little biography. His yes. childhood experiences were like this, etc. And then you would have a kind of formulation that captured what is the most likely syndrome that the individual had, what's their personality characteristics, what are the antecedent factors, etc. How we we replace this with this with this checkbox uh, algorithmic approach as you describe it? I think it's important to remember the historical point. This was in the early 1970s, mm-hmm. when a certain group of extremely influential psychiatrists realized that psychiatry was being uh, derided by its 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 siblings in yes. other branches of medicine, and also they felt that the approach that was being used was very non-scientific. And so the the decision to embrace a very algorithmic diagnostic system was an intentional one to try and make psychiatry come closer to yes. its siblings. Yes. But unlike its siblings, where the siblings had you know diagnostic tests, there were these miracles of diagnoses and biomarkers and so on in other branches of medicine, of course psychiatry had none. So what did the founding fathers of the modern approach do? They said, well, look, let's try and create artificial categories based on what we see in our clinics, create homogenous groups so that one day by studying these homogenous groups, we might discover that holy grail, the biological mystery of that particular homogenous group. And in this way, we might then validate those particular categories. Honestly, it's easy in hindsight to sort of say, what a crazy approach, but, you know, it was well-intentioned, Chris. Mm-hmm. If I was in those shoes back in the 70s, maybe I might have made the same decision. Yes. Because, mind you, that diagnostic approach had worked miracles in other branches of medicine. So I think it was a reasonable punt that, you know, if we embrace the same approach, one day we'll have these same kind of blood tests or x-rays that will, you know, we'll be able to diagnose mental conditions. However, we need to acknowledge, 50 years on, the adoption of this approach has led us into a cul-de-sac. We have neither a single new understanding for any mental health condition, nor a single new, really transformative new therapeutic target or a prevention target. And it's therefore really important for the field to carefully examine the direction of travel it takes in the future. Well, I think, Vikram, what you're saying is we started out with a pursuit of something which was an ideal. And we've kind of traveled along that road and we're beginning to see the limitations up, you know, ahead of us. And technologically, we simply haven't delivered in terms of what we were hoping for. Now, I don't know that having a diagnostic system is necessarily a bad thing. So I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but we are saying, okay, time to kind of reflect and see how you use what you have in the best interest of the patient. And I think that we're looking for something a bit more balanced. And, and I suppose there's been a lot of criticism of the DSM, not least of all, because it's always adding. I mean, I have people come to me who are not psychiatrists and they want to know how many new categories or how many new diagnoses have you added? And, you know, I'm, well, yes, the DSM is kind of expanding. And so where did all of these come from? And there's a kind of a quizzical look in terms of how psychiatry seems to be growing. And one of the concerns is that we are kind of narrowing the range of normality and expanding the disease profile. And then it brings to me a question of our legitimacy as a discipline. So, Severe, I'll throw that one to you. 
Yeah, I, I really think we, we've lost our identity. Uh, and I think you know, we need to go back. And often these words are used interchangeably. Mental health, you know, we have a mental health care act. We talk about mental illness. We talk about psychiatry. But these are three very distinct entities. And, and you know, we, we tend to conflate them together. I think it's 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 fundamental that we uh, define our identity and have the courage to actually feel comfortable in that identity that we define for ourselves. I mean, I, I've said this before, that psychiatrists mean translates to healers of the soul. And if you think historically, our roots lay in, you know, religious leaders were, were tasked with taking care of the maladies of emotion and the mind, etc., and, and sure enough, we wanted to gain credibility within our medical fields and with our medical peers. But I think with the trajectory that we're going on with DSM, uh, we, we, sh- we, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. These are good research cr- criteria, but in terms of therapeutics, um, I, I think we, we, we're going to lose the plot unless we, we kind of get a hold on what's uh, going on. Uh, yes, carry on. I also, you know, I want to comment on the fact that, you know, what, what was, we were talking earlier about the industrialization of medicine. Mm. You know, we are a profession. Doctors are part of a medical profession. And, and I had a, 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 a former dean of our medical school and the head of the health professional council, um, of Kalishram who once met me in, at the airport. And she says, you know, medicine is no longer a profession. It's become a business. Mm. And I think that, that adds, and, and we all know about the, I'm not going to say the word, the diagnostic, um, arena and the business. And people have criticized that as well, because every few years there's a new system coming out and you have to buy the book and the handbook and the uh, whatever, whatever, whatever. So I, I think, you know, it's about defining ourselves as a profession and, and being true to what we truly represent. Yes. Um, I, I, there was a nice quote. We said, you know, Freud, with Freud, psych lost, psychiatry lost its soul. And with the DSM, it has lost its mind. Um, wow. That's... <laughs> we need to take stock of where we are going to really for the love and passion of psychiatry, because become like you as well. And, and most of the registrars who join me, they, they're attracted to psychiatry because it says we can actually sit and talk to our patients. We can yeah. listen to them, but the, the the road we are traveling with DSM, I, I often tell them, it's a disclaimer in my lectures that I'm teaching you something that I don't believe in because I can program a robot to make a diagnosis if I give them the whole of our diagnostic criteria. Sure. And I can also, based on treatment algorithms, tell that robot <clears throat> which would be a suitable drug to prescribe given our limited formulary in the state sector. Mm. So I ask them, what what is your role as a doctor? Then? Why do we need you? Mm. And? Do they have an answer? Or they does don't, it, because or, or, unfortunately or, they shepherded into this, they come into our training platforms and this is what they see and this is what they think psychiatry is about. And we were reminiscing earlier that those of us who are older in years knew of another kind of psychiatry, the one that we entered. And But the current generations will never know that unless we fight for restoring our identity. Well, I think part of that or the conversations that we have with our patients that should not be time constrained in the sense that you've got a 15 minute consultation. 
I think for me that is one of the most dehumanizing elements where everybody has to get sandwiched into this time-constrained consultation where you barely say, hello, how are you? And then it's time to to give a script and move on to, to the next patient. So this whole issue of quantity versus quality where there's this financial imperative, there's a cost-effectiveness element brought into it. And for me, the richness of psychiatry is in the conversations that I have with, with patients. And you know, just, just going back to Vikram's description of how you would introduce a patient in a grand ward round, the richness of that person's life, the context of their existence, which gives you so many clues to potential interventions, which brings me, Vikram, to something very specific that you have an issue with, which is – Social psychiatry. And I think this is something that's come up in a previous episode of this podcast where we're looking at the fact that the sort of bio has kind of overshadowed the psycho, but specifically the social and looking at the social determinants of, 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 of wellness. So your comments on, 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 on that, Vikram, this whole issue of social psychiatry being potentially, hopefully not lost, but certainly relegated to, to a position which actually increasingly we're beginning to see if we look at childhood trauma and adverse childhood experiences, actually you cannot practice psychiatry without a social context. Well, you know what? I think that's exactly the point, Chris. You cannot practice psychiatry without attending to the psychological and social needs of an individual. Right. This is, you know, if you look at our textbook, okay, yeah. I would say at least two-thirds of our textbooks are focused on the psychosocial. And then, you know, and this goes back to how our conversation began about the commercial determinants of health, you know, the medical industrial complex. Yes. There is no profiting from attending to psychological and social uh, yeah. concerns. There is no money in it. Yes. Uh, you know, I wrote recently uh, in, in, a, in a commentary uh, in The Lancet, if psychosocial interventions could be bottled mm. into a pill, they would be the most widely prescribed medication. Yeah. Not just in psychiatry, they would be the most widely prescribed intervention in all of medicine. Let's pause for a moment. I mean, you know, mm. Savira made this really important observation about psychedelic uh, 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 interventions. This has become the new rage in psychiatry. Whew. If you look at the evidence on psychedelic interventions, it is pretty thin. Yeah. And of course, no one is really asking questions at the moment about the dangers of yeah. these medications. Um, and yet, here's the irony. We have known for more than 50 years the importance of psychosocial interventions to promote the recovery of individuals. The vast majority of people struggling with their mental health don't have access to them. But what do psychiatrists do? We're literally clutching at straws. There is a new medication in town yep. with, a, with an effect size. It gets published in a great journal and we all go rushing to it yep. instead of stepping back and saying, hey, guys, what about the treatments we've known or interventions that we've known that worked for the last five decades and none of us actually make any effort to get our patients to receive those? Again, it's a point of reflection here uh, that, you know, we have, I'm sorry to say, and I'm going to be harsh here. Yes, we've sold our souls to big pharma. Oh, and and you know, and I'll tell you, I, I live and work in the U.S. now, and I can tell you, this is a country that exemplifies yes. how the medical profession and psychiatry, in particular, has totally sold its soul to big pharma. You only have to look at the opioid crisis, a yeah. form of a mental health problem, by the way. It's interesting how in this country, very few people see the opioid crisis as a symptom of a deep mental anguish mm -hmm. in, in large swathes of the American population. 
But equally, very few people recognize that the collusion of the medical profession, yes. not just psychiatry, by the way, many mm-hmm. opioids are prescribed, in fact, by primary care practitioners and so-called pain specialists, um, is a direct example of how uh, prescribers have colluded with extremely corrupt pharmaceutical companies to create what is historically one of the worst man-made iatrogenic crises mm. in history. Well, I think that that's the reason why I wanted to do this particular episode of the podcast, because at the end of the day, we have to start reflecting on where we are and to what extent we are part of the problem, actually, as it's kind of unfolding in, in, in front of us. And of course, psilocybin is the new go-to and it's, 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 it's in vogue. And I always have concerns where I see one agent being used for everything as if this is the panacea that's going to sort everything out. And, and I think we're also living in a society or an age of the quick fix and we want things that are quick, effective, cost efficient, move on. And I, I, I have real reservations, but I'll tell you one thing, Vikram. The pharmaceutical industry has worked out mushrooms, and I saw a photograph of a plant being built in Lesotho for the manufacture and the growing of mushrooms. So the pharmaceutical industry is over the target, and they're beginning to see it for what it potentially might offer, which is something highly lucrative. But I think if I look at psychiatry biologically, we're at a biological impasse. I mean, we are having to resort to repurposed anesthetic agents, ketamine. And, you know, there is data for intravenous ketamine and now the nasal spray. So there is data that's emerging in, in specific indications. And psilocybin, I mean, you know, the, the psychedelics which have been around for decades and decades and decades. So this is kind of like the new cutting edge of psychiatry. And yet all the other stuff we're talking about kind of gets lost in that noise. And so that's a real concern for me. Savira? Yeah, I, I think you, you brought me to my pet topic. Uh, there's <laughs> two comments first. This biological reductionism. We talk about, you know, everything has to be biological to get credibility in the medical world. But every psychosocial stressor impacts on an individual through epigenetics and ultimately expresses itself biologically. So there's this false dichotomy between psychosocial and biological factors that say the final common pathway is it's going to impact on your biology and that's going to manifest in symptoms in your body or in your mind. The second uh, issue is about, you know, today it's magic mushrooms. Tomorrow it's going to be something else. We've gone beyond cannabis. And basically all we are in pursuit of some way to evade suffering. Yes. That's the bottom line. We yes. want to evade, do what you want. And, you know, there was somebody who said that we will use anesthesia and amnesia to, to evade suffering. But suffering is an essential part of, part and parcel of human living. And if people can accept that and rather face the suffering than using all these like opioids to mm. um, kind of run away or not face the suffering and then as a result create secondary, tertiary, problems just from running away from the primary suffering. I don't know when we're going to, you know, stop that uh, pursuit of some magic pill that's going to eradicate suffering. And yet people are relentless. The farmer is relentless in its pursuit of that magic pill. But you know, but you know, when you talk about suffering being part of the human condition and the fact that through suffering, generally speaking, if you manage it or you work through it comes, comes growth, you're talking about somebody who's a bit spiritually more evolved in that sense, who can actually 
internalize exactly what you're saying. It's not that we want people to suffer. They're obviously nope. not. But the truth of the matter is that sometimes to actually ultimately deal with whatever it is that ails you, you have to go through some of the pain and some of the hard work. And then we're moving away from the biological and back to the psychosocial and even the spiritual in that sense. But these things take time. And again, we come back to this whole issue of, of, of time being, you know, at a, at a premium. And it's all about cost and who's got the time quick and fixes. How, yeah. quick fixes and, 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 and moving rapidly towards resolution so that I can live my life without struggle. So I don't know, Vikram, are, are we, yeah. Sorry, can I just say yeah, one thing? Of course. Even if you're not evolved and self-aware yes. about suffering, so we don't want to even go to that end. Let's come back to basic human emotions. Yes. That somehow it's taboo, that it's, it's a problem to feel sad. It's a problem to feel any bit of anxiety, even if you're being attacked by somebody. Uh, it's a problem now to feel grief. We are slowly but surely pathologizing a lot of normal human emotions. And emotions are there as, as signals, as signs. It's like pain. We feel pain for our own good so that we respond to it. When you have physical pain, it's an alerter. It's a messenger. It's your defense system that says there's a problem here. Go and check what's going, what's the cause of the pain. And the same with emotional pain. If we go and delve deeper and find out where's the source of that pain, then we realize the anxiety is normal, it's um, adaptive if we react and respond to that pain normally. So I think also, you know, with psychiatry also driven a lot by farmers' agenda is to now to pathologize a lot of normal human experiences. So I think that's also where I think the the integrity and identity of our pre of our profession is being threatened. Well, I think it's about – Well, Vikram's going to jump in, but I'm just saying, that, you know, pathologizing, I'm looking at the medicalization of yep. the human condition. And I think yep. before we're careful, everything is medicalized. And then I don't know what medicine is anymore. Vikram? So, first of all, let, 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 me, let me make my position very clear on yes. this. Yes. I, I am not in – Anyway, suggesting there isn't a biological basis oh, no. uh, to mental no, health. Yeah, no, I, I think it's important that yes. these, these conversations don't get misconstrued into saying Absolutely. it's all psychosocial. No, because no. that is as dangerous as saying it's all biological. Right? Yes. I mean, the word biopsychosocial is there for a, for a reason. Yes. It's, it's there because it illustrates to us the need to engage with the complexity of the interaction between biological, psychological, and social factors to understand mental health. And I think the reductionism that we've seen uh, in psychiatry is just as dangerous as another form of reductionism that you often see with anti-psychiatrists. Right. That the whole, the whole of mental illness is socially constructed. And I think we should start by rejecting all forms of reductionism uh, on either side of this debate. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is, I, I agree that diagnoses have a purpose, okay, but they cannot be the only way we characterize an individual's mental health difficulties or suffering. So to use the word suffering that Supira mentioned, I, I, I think the concept of social suffering is a very powerful one. Mm. And it's important to say that you don't need to validate a person's suffering by offering them a diagnosis. Mm. You can acknowledge a person's suffering without the need of a diagnosis, but equally, I don't agree that suffering simply means you've got to tighten your belt and figure out how to deal with it, either through some inner resources because you're, you know, you're, you have some heightened level of intelligence or because, you know, you're, you can find some spiritual uh, solace. I actually think suffering means 
that we need to engage with care systems in the community. As you know, a lot of my work mm. is around care systems in the community. I believe that there is plenty of evidence now, a lot of it coming from sub-Saharan Africa, clearly demonstrating that a non-diagnosis approach in one which actually focuses on individuals' felt needs and deploys people in the community to deliver support, predominantly psychological and social support, is incredibly effective in helping reduce the slide into more severe mental health problems. That's the kind of meeting place for all these different ideas when you consider the practical meaning of all of this conversation. Otherwise, it can be very abstract. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. deal with these situations in the real world where we deal with it by recognizing that one size does not fit all Mm. and that there are alternatives that leverage community resources to support those who are suffering without the explicit need of a diagnosis. Well, I think that one of the issues, and and I think you you made the point very explicitly and I endorse it completely, is that a biopsychosocial approach needs to be balanced. And I think that the concern is that the psychosocial has been kind of not lost, but sort of underplayed in the sense that the biological has been potentially overstated and overplayed. They're all important. And I think Severa's point was that ultimately Everything impacts on biology. So your social circumstances, if one starts to look at that, I mean, when you come back to adverse childhood experiences, for example, and what the consequences might be through adolescence and adulthood, we're looking at societal issues that impact upon potentially biology of an individual and then influence disease manifestation for which then we need to adopt a very broad biopsychosocial and increasingly spiritual approach in terms of how we engage. So I think we, we have to be careful. I think you're correct. We don't want to now push biology to one side as if it's not important. Of course it's important, but so is the psychosocial. And exactly what you're saying now, Vikram, in terms of alternative uh, uh, elements of care, looking at the community, could you be more specific in, 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 in that sense? Because I think that what we're talking about is taking things out of the need for specialist and subspecialist interventions and bringing it back down to where does the person live? Who do they live with? What is the context of their existence? Well, I mean, a very practical example, really, uh, uh, Chris, is, is, is work that I've been you know, involved with in India for the last two decades, which is now seeing uh, fruition in the form of the government's own frontline workers. These are called ashas. They, they, that's a cadre in, in the government's healthcare system in India. They're India's community health workers. There's more than a million of them. Sure. Uh, and there's a, there's a plan to actually double that number in the coming years. Their primary role, th- these are women from the local community. Most right. of them have not graduated from school. They're predominantly rural health workers. These women have acquired tremendous respect in their local communities because of the role that they've played in health promotion, particularly in the area of maternal and child health. Right. And as India has achieved its targets in terms of improving maternal and child health indicators. Um, They're now being redeployed for other health conditions, including mental health care. Now, imagine, therefore, a situation where a health worker who has visited your household for the last 10 years to look after your your, your reproductive and your maternal and, and, and child health needs now begins to engage with you about your mental health without the need of a diagnosis, asking you some, some validated questions about the, your, your mood and anxiety, for example, asking you how that's affecting your daily life and using that information to arrive at some kind of an assessment to say this individual may be depressed and then offering you a brief evidence-based psychological intervention that 
predominantly targets your problem-solving abilities and gets you to engage with mm. your social world in a pleasurable way, which has been shown to work. Right? Isn't that what we really need need to be going towards? Of course, the health worker, being a health worker, is actually also plugged into the rest of the healthcare system. Yeah. So therefore, if the individual continues to be very depressed or doesn't respond, there is in fact a direct pathway then for this community health worker to refer that individual for more specialized care. So the way I see this mm -hmm. is, a, is a mental health care system yeah. that reaches into the community, that embraces a diverse workforce, and that works as a collaborative and coordinated healthcare system, rather than what we have currently, is that people land up in psychiatric care, usually, uh, you know, when they're having an acute crisis or need admission, and they, and, you know, they bounce out once the crisis is over and bounce back in when the next crisis occurs, rather than, as my late department chair, Paul Farmer, beautifully described it, we are failing to accompany people with mental health problems on their journeys to recovery. That means being responsive in a person-centered way to the different needs they have yeah. at different times yes. during the trajectory of their mental health uh, condition. Well, I think that you're describing a system, and I think that's very important because it is a system, and it's well thought through, and it's properly structured, and it is evidence-based in terms of what can be delivered at what point for the person depending on their need. But the primary starting point is that the individual's concerns come from within the community. And I wonder, Vikram, to what extent we are looking at the issue of a more traditional versus a more modern society, to what extent the system you're describing and the model you're describing is better suited towards a traditional society where people are closer to their origins, where they come from, their families, their, 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 their friends and their way of being, their culture and their traditions. Whereas in an urban westernized society, we're much more isolated. We're much more disconnected. And I'm wondering to what extent we are able to bridge the gap from what we're learning in those kinds of societies, how we move it into an urban Western society. So I don't know what your thoughts on that might be. Well, it's an interesting question. You know, um, this is obviously an important concern, Chris. Yeah. Uh, my own experience has been that community health workers historically have always been primarily rural-based. And the reason why that was the case was because uh, routine biomedical health services had a very poor penetration into rural areas. So mm. the community health worker was seen as a kind of a, a person who could reach these remote and far-flung areas and populations of low density. Um, but there is now an increasing engagement of these kinds of frontline providers in urban areas. In the right. U.S., for example, uh, a country which has more mental health human resources per capita than any other country in the world that spends more uh, on uh, uh, mental health care than any other country in the world. There is now a movement to diversify the workforce. You know, the U.S. is predominantly, uh, you know, an urban society. I mean, there are parts of the U.S. which, as well, which are very rural. But, you know, it's a largely urbanized uh, society. If the U.S. is embracing community health workers, peer support workers, mm. uh, a variety of other community-based agents, it's clearly an indicator that no matter how much mental health specialist resource you have, the real need that people have is often in the community. Mm. And therefore, we need to actually recognize these frontline providers as a universal mm. human resource that have applicability in all resource contexts. And of course, that means in both urban as well as in rural areas. And I think what's very important is that there is a constant liaison between 
workers at that level and at the highest level so that there is a smooth transition between the various levels of care as required. So Vera, your thoughts, because obviously within the South African context, we often talk about community psychiatry. I'm not even sure what that really means anymore, but your thoughts, Vera, in terms of what we're discussing. I think two important words we use is care and community. The caring has gone out of our profession. And, uh, you know, you think of the traditional model of medicine where we had GPs going, doing house calls. They knew the entire family, the community. And, yes, it has been good that, uh, you know, with the scientific advances, the, the greater health technology that we have and the medication, we've advanced, uh, you know, medicine significantly. But I believe it's come at the cost of us caring. We, we shifted our title from the Mental Health Act to the Mental Health Care Act. Yes. But I haven't seen any increase in caring. Our doctors are not taught how to care. They are taught how to diagnose and how to treat. Yes. So I think that's an important point. In terms of the community healthcare, I really do think, I think, Vikram, one of the, the diagrams I always like is the World Health Organization's optimal service mix, which mm-hmm. I show to everybody. And, and us doctors are sitting just at the tip of that iceberg, a very small, insignificant, well, not insignificant, but, you know, when you look at the base where it's the community and the self-care, et cetera, that's where the greatest need is, and that's where we are most absent and lacking, especially with our departure from that GP traditional model of care. Yes, we also have community-based workers that go out into the communities, but they were rolled out and trained largely for uh, infectious diseases, and I've, it's a battle I've been you know, trying to, to address for years now is why aren't they trained in mental health? Uh, you know, to go out from door to door and find people who are chained up in corners because they're psychotic, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I know there were some attempts made to try and train these community uh, care workers and, and to uh, screen for mental illness and also to provide support, but I'm not sure how far that's gone. So I, I, I think the crux of community care, and whether you're living in a rural area, as Vikram has described, or in America, where it's highly, you know, it's a different socioeconomic scale, I think the, the important link is a sense of community, the sense of connectedness. And, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence, scientific evidence to show the harmful effects on our, our physical health and our mental health on isolation. Yep. And, you know, we could be living in, in the same apartment building, but we are disconnected from each other. And I, I think, you know, we underestimate the harm that has done to us as a society. So, yes, I would think that that community workers being that link maybe between our very scientific, technologized medical system um, and, and the patient, uh, that, that link that will provide that, that missing element of care. But that I think therapeutic. That's it's absolutely essential. As Vikram was saying earlier, a patient doesn't need a diagnosis, doesn't need a label. They need to know that they are heard. Yeah. A compassionate ear is what yeah. that in itself is therapeutic. And for that, you don't need training as you Sangat workers, the friendship bench, um, the, the go-go's there. Yes. Uh, they don't have all the scientific knowledge, but they, they care. Yeah. And they have time for patients. And that in itself is healing. It's therapeutic. So that's a, that's an ingredient that we are, our medical, um, fraternity is being eroded off. So th- I wanted to come back to something which I think is important to emphasize. 
You know, psychiatry always claims the biopsychosocial model, and I think rightly so. But I think increasingly medicine in general is beginning to understand and hopefully coming to that realization that actually that applies to all medical disciplines. This is not just for psychiatry. It's for all. So I just sort of went off on a tangent because I wanted to just remember that point. But just in terms of our own Mental Health Care Act, I think one of the issues that I had with the act is that patients were no longer referred to as patients. They were referred yes. to as users. And I think for me, that was one of the most dehumanizing elements of the progressive act, which was supposed to be about human rights and, you know, with respect to our new constitution. And then to speak about mental health care users for me was hugely problematic. So that's just as an aside, seeing as you brought up the, uh, the mental health care act. But now we're talking about person to person. We're talking about communication, connection, relationships and the way in which our society has become more fragmented, certainly in the urban setting and and more isolated. What about artificial intelligence and, you know, chat GPT? I mean, I think that psychiatry is probably the most human of all the disciplines, and yet increasingly I'm beginning to have a concern that we might be the most vulnerable where it's simply assumed that you can just chat to a bot, a chat bot, and you can get your counseling and your advice from Artificial intelligence, and there was a recent uh, uh, report in the media about this Belgian chap who'd been engaging with the chatbot over six weeks, and eventually the chatbot said to him, well, why don't you just end your life if you feel so strongly about climate change? And he did. Now, we don't know whether he had a pre-existing psychiatric illness or not. That's not been revealed. But the concern for me is that in terms of efficiency and where we started out with the industrialization and productivity, is psychiatry particularly vulnerable? to artificial intelligence and the use or potential misuse of the chatbot, whatever one would call them. I don't know, Vikram, what your thoughts are because you're living in a very progressive society. And, you know, <laughs> well, actually, you know I actually split my year between the U.S. and India, so I live in two very, very illiberal societies. So, right. you know, let, let, let me, let's be very clear. Democracies don't always generate. Uh, a liberal progressive society, and I live in two countries that are a great, a great uh, exemplar of that. Yes. But, but you know, to the point about AI, I, I don't know enough about where AI is going to take us. But yeah. one thing I will say is that the lessons uh, of of the you know the technology revolution that used to excite psychiatry uh, back you know in the early aughts, you know, if you remember, there was this mushrooming yes. of digital mental health with all these apps and all these. New ideas about yes. you know remote uh, behavioral biomarkers, etc., yeah. that you could pick up from your phone. How many companies do you know by name? I often I often yeah, ask I, my uh, you know my students. I say you know how many taxi companies do you know? Oh, there's Uber. That's yeah. fine. There's Uber. That's it. There's one digital taxi company in the U.S. That's yeah. Uber and Lyft. Everyone knows that name. How many mental health companies are there or apps that are, are there? But most people say, oh, I don't know, maybe 100, 200. And then I say, there's more than 20,000. Wow. And how many do you actually know the name of? And most people can't even name one. So let me be very honest with you. Yes. Digital mental health was sold to us as another panacea mm-hmm. for population mental health problems. It is rapidly disappearing. Most people have lost all their money that they've invested in these companies. And I, I kind of think we need to just therefore be skeptical. Mm. about how we're going to replace it. What is the big lesson of all of this, Chris? Mm. 
is that when people are struggling with their mental health, they don't want to sit with a phone to try and figure out the tools and the tricks that they need yeah. in order to fix their mind. What they want is to sit with somebody else. It could be a priest, a neighbor, a family member, or a therapist yeah. to listen yes. to them. And most people are smart enough to know that when they're with a artificial intelligence or some chatbot, that there is nobody on the other end who's yeah. responding. It's yes. a computer. People aren't stupid. Yes. Um, and the loss the lack of that therapeutic alliance that people have identified for the last 50 years as being central to the healing process, and not just in psychiatry, by the way, yeah. this is true of all of medicine, cannot be fully replaced by some kind of computerized device. I couldn't agree with you more. Severa? Definitely. I think we are social beings, and our, our, session, our, our essence is to connect connect with other human beings and and that you know it's an exchange not just of information because that's the the chatbot will give you that uh it's an exchange of energy and as vikram says uh and i you know uh i was going to say as well is that the the essence of all therapeutic uh, engagements is the the relationship so you cannot have a relationship with a, a bot or artificial intelligence uh, I, I certainly uh, that's, I think that's also an important reason why our profession as a whole needs to wake up to its true purpose and, and the, the value that it can add in terms of its holistic approach to, to, uh, to treating, uh, and caring for our patients. The word care, you know, Absolutely. I don't know that a bot can care and show that and we can, our mirror neurons can, kind of resonate with each other and learning can take place in, in the true humanistic sense. So definitely not AI for me. Well, I think psychiatry needs to embrace what makes it special, which is being truly biopsychosocial and increasingly, as I said, spiritual. And I think moving towards a more balanced understanding of how all of these factors are determinants of health and are essential for incorporation into any management understanding. So come to the end of our time. It's been a very stimulating, wide-ranging conversation where we've looked at many things, obviously many things not looked at, but such a pleasure to host both of you. And I want to thank you for, for, for taking the time to share your thoughts and, and expertise. And I'm going to close with a few words from Alan Francis. He's an American psychiatrist and he's the former chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University School of Medicine, best known for chairing the DSM-4 task force and later roundly criticizing the DSM-5 and American psychiatry for their roles in manufacturing mental illnesses and the epidemic of overdiagnosis. And this is all taken from an interview that you can find at uh, psychotherapy.net where he said, a really well-rounded clinician has to be good at everything. And here we're talking biopsychosocial and spiritual and especially has to be good at relating to the people that they're trying to treat. And in relation to psychotherapy and healing, he said, it's the relationship that heals more than the technique. So I think the power of psychiatry certainly as a discipline lies in relationships. And for all the neuroscience, let's not forget the fundamentals. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care. Today we're talking to Sham Mudley. Uh, Sham is a community pharmacist with over 29 years of experience. He's based in the Durban South Basin area, the Natraj Pharmacy specifically. Sham, 
Welcome to Beyond Madness. Now, we live in stressful times where demand for emotional support and guidance may be high, but services limited. So it's good to know that there are potential resources in unexpected places. Counseling is not typically something one associates with a pharmacist, and yet these are skills that certain pharmacists have. Now, noting your passion for patient care, could you elaborate? Yeah, good day to you, and thank you very much for this invitation. Uh, you're touching on a extremely uh, uh, sensitive issue around counseling. Yes. And I think uh, you're talking to the right people here. Right. Because remember, every time you get um, a prescription, uh, it comes with um, some medication, but attached to the medication is a whole lot of counseling that goes on into that. And pharmacists are certainly adequately trained. Part of their curriculum is uh, the training around uh, allowing them to be able to uh, take patients through a whole counseling process. So right. they definitely have the skills to do that and in various areas. So let's just start with what you're very familiar with, which is around the medication issues. Yes. And mm. so every, as I said, every prescription comes with some meds and the pharmacist needs to give you some counseling uh, sessions around it so that you can appropriately use those medication. Beyond that, um, it's one of those services that you can walk into, um, whether it's emotional, whether it's something that you are worried about your kids uh, or something that you are concerned about in terms of your own personal well-being, mm. whether it's your mental state. Um, we recently started something around uh, abuse of uh, women and children. Right. Um, so any one of those counseling issues, the pharmacist certainly can assist you with it. Um, so as I said their own skills can do that. Right. And as part of that service, yes. what we're offering is a, a, t a touch point yes. with other providers. Yes. So a, re a reference point from pharmacy to uh, psychological services, to um, other types of social workers, for example, that you might need counseling services. So the pharmacist would be able to work out a path for you right. to access appropriate uh, services wherever uh, they are unable to uh, facilitate that program for you. Well, potentially um, where the patient hadn't necessarily even thought about it, the pharmacist may be able to guide you and say, well, listening to what you're talking about, this is what I would recommend, this is what I would suggest. Absolutely. So those are critical areas of touch point for pharmacists, and that's what they do. Um, they're a good source of referral uh, in the community. So there's very few healthcare professionals that you can just walk into and mm. say, uh, can I see my healthcare professional? Right. In pharmacies, you can do that. Yes. So it doesn't matter what the issues are uh, that you are concerned about. Uh, you, you can always touch base with either the pharmacist or one of their qualified staff members that would be able to even help you with certain issues. But most times you would get referred to the pharmacist for more specialized counseling and services. Well, I think this is the beauty of the community pharmacist because at the end of the day, you do establish a relationship with a health professional who potentially would recognize certain things in you or about you. And uh, you can have those kind of conversations because you have a relationship. And as I said, I think that's one of the strengths of having a community pharmacy and getting to know your community pharmacist. Sham, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. And hopefully this has been something of an education and an eye opener for our listeners too. So thank you very much. You're welcome and good luck to you. Thank to you. Your listeners.